Well, again, good morning, everyone. It's, it's good to see you here this morning. Uh, today, we are in week two of our current series called Can I Ask That? And uh, if you were here last week, you'll remember that when Pastor Chris was introducing this series, he talked about that as pastors, we recognize that there are many questions that both Christians and non-Christians alike are asking. There are these questions out there that that many of us, perhaps even in this room, are are struggling with or have struggled with. We also know that many of you perhaps grew up in churches or in families where expressing questions and expressing doubt uh, was discouraged. Maybe it was even just not allowed. Maybe you were given simple uh, responses like, well, you just need to have more faith or how dare you question the Bible or, or things like that. And I'm sure that if that is you, that that upbringing, that experience has affected you even today. And maybe one of the ways it's affected you is you feel hesitant to to bring up your questions, to bring up your doubts to others. Maybe the thought of talking to a pastor about that or a life group leader just seems like not an option because of, again, the way that you grew up. But one of our goals and objectives in even having a series like this is to show and to explicitly share with you that we think it's okay to have questions. That we think it's okay to still be wrestling and to perhaps still be struggling with doubt. And we want our church to be the kind of place where people feel safe to ask hard questions. We want people to feel safe to come to our pastors or to a life group leader with those doubts. You see, we recognize, we know that life is hard. We know that things can be confusing, and yet we also believe and know that there are good, are good answers to those hard questions. And so today, by God's grace, I'm going to attempt to tackle perhaps uh, what some have said is the hardest question of them all, that being the problem of evil and suffering. And you know, it's not lost on me that I'm speaking on this topic just One week after such a horrible mass shooting took place last week. That last week while worshiping, 26 people lost their lives. That that eight of them were from one family. That 10 of the wounded and killed were children. It just seems like we keep seeing things like this happen more and more frequently. And and it's just simply devastating. It's heart-wrenching. And there's just this sense, I think, with all of us that this is not the way that it should be. That this is just not right. As well, it's not lost on me that I'm addressing this topic on a day that we call Orphan Sunday. The fact that such a day exists and it's such a crisis, I think, is troubling and even shows why this question is so unavoidable. And again, why it's perhaps the strongest argument against God and against Christianity. And so before we get going on this, I just want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. I think we need some help. I feel like I need some help. Um... And also, I want to lift up the families down in Texas and also pray for Doug and, and OWR and the work that they're doing. And so, would you join me in prayer? Father, we do just ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit today. Lord, that the Spirit would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. Lord, that there would be a sense of just extra grace poured out, extra comfort poured out as we look at and walk through such a difficult question. Lord, we need you. We need your presence. Lord, I also want to just lift up these families and the victims, Lord, who uh, just suffered such a horrible tragedy last week, Lord. We just ask for them that you would give them grace, Lord. 
God, thank you for the ways that that they've been able to respond and to point to you and to still uh, worship in the midst of such heartache. And Lord, I pray for Doug and uh, just the work that OWR is doing and other ministries like theirs to address the orphan crisis around the world. God, I just pray for OWR specifically that you uh, just would pour out your blessing and your grace on them, that they'd be able to expand their work even more. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before we get started on this question and this topic, I, I just want you to know that I am addressing this today as a fellow human being, as, as someone who uh, is a fellow sufferer. What, what I mean by that is that my life has not been immune from tragedy and suffering. And I, I want you to know that because I don't want you to take what I'm saying today as some cold or as some indifferent arguments or statements, as if I've never had to wrestle with this myself at an emotional level. The other thing I want to say is this, that when it comes to this question, there is an intellectual side of it. There's this side where you're where you're dealing with philosophical arguments and logic and reason. And and I am going to walk us through those arguments as well, though, when it comes to this question, there's also an emotional side, a very personal side where where you yourself have felt the effects of evil and suffering. And it's really from that place that that maybe some of us here today are struggling with this question. But what I, you know, so if you're in that place, this, you know, for you, this issue is not some abstract philosophical question, but rather it's a deeply personal and painful. And I am going to try to address both sides of that. But I do want you to understand that that my approach today is primarily from an apologetic standpoint rather than a pastoral or a discipleship approach. And so if you're here today, you're in that real place of suffering and pain. I just I want you to know that up front. And, and actually, a few weeks ago, Pastor Chris addressed the topic of suffering in a message called Made for Glory out of Romans 8. And in that, he really talked about more from a pastoral discipleship approach, how you and I as Christians can face and handle suffering. And so maybe if you're in that place, it'd be helpful to go back and to rewatch that or if you missed, or if you missed it to watch it. And so as all of that is kind of a qualifier, let's go ahead and jump in. And the first thing I want to do is just simply lay out what is what exactly is the problem or the question that we're dealing with here when it comes to this topic. And I think just very simply, the problem is this. For many of us, we watch the news, we read the pages of history, or we even just reflect on our own lives. And when we do that, we see that evil and suffering is everywhere. I mean, let's just consider the news in the last three to four months. We had a mass uh, shooting in Las Vegas where dozens were killed. We had a hurricane and massive flooding hit Houston where, where, you know, thousands lost their homes and possessions and all kinds of things. People lost their lives. Right after that, we had another hurricane hit the coast of Florida. And then just again, last week, we had this other mass shooting down in Texas. And, and all of this in just the last three to four months of our news cycle. And so that's the news. What about when we think about history? Well, even if we just go to last century alone, we see that things are disturbing and troubling. We look at things going on with Pol Pot, the communist dictator in Cambodia. He alone was responsible for about two million Cambodian deaths. We think about Stalin in Russia. He actually kept his government from keeping official records. And so we don't know exactly how many he killed. But but most historians believe it's at least around 20 million, but probably more. 
And then there's Hitler and the Nazis who we're probably more familiar with. And, and we know that they killed about six million Jews. And I've personally been to Auschwitz where about a million of them were killed. And it's by far the most haunting and disturbing place that I've ever been. You go there and there's all these little buildings and you walk into them and and in lining the hallway are these individual pictures of the prisoners. And they're almost like a mug shot. You get a, a picture of the front of their face and then a, a side shot. And it's it's just it's just deeply horrifying. They all look the same. They have buzzed heads and the, their faces are kind of sunken in and their eyes are set back from being starved to death and tortured. And again, those images have just stayed with me, even though it's been over 10 years since I was there. You, you walk into these buildings and, and behind a glass wall, behind one of them is a, a huge room filled up with human hair. And it's just the hair from that they had shaved off of the prisoners that came in. You, you go into another room and behind a glass wall is this huge pile of shoes uh, from where they just collected them from the people who went through there. You go into another room and there's all of these eyeglasses piled up. There's all these little kids toys piled up. And again, it's just, it's, it's disturbing. You go and you see the gas chambers where they, again, killed all of these uh, thousands and thousands of people. And then you see the crematoriums where they then burnt the bodies. And you, you just see all of this and you just, it makes you sick to your stomach. And you just think, what incredible evil. What suffering. How could this have happened? And yet even in those three examples, I mean, I didn't even mention China's Mao, but, but in those three alone, Pol Pot, Stalin, and Hitler, we're only accounting for about 30 to 40 years of history. And only of the fraction of the evil and suffering that has existed since the beginning of humanity. And even if you and I, if we knew nothing about history, if we never watched the news, I think for most of us, we could just reflect on our own lives. Think about the suffering that we have experienced and the evil that has been perpetrated against us. And for many of us, that alone would be enough to still struggle and to wrestle with this question. And so I think given all of this, it's easy to see why this is such an issue, why this is a problem. And so if that's the problem, what's the question? Well, classically, it has been framed as something like this. How can an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God allow so much suffering and evil in the world? How, how many of you ever heard a question something like that? Yeah, I think most of us, if, if, if you're talking with people or watching things, you're going to hear a question like that. And usually the person asking that or stating that, what they're trying to do is to disprove the existence of God based on that fact. You see, last week, Chris gave some arguments and some evidences for the existence of God, whereas the question we're dealing with today is an argument against the existence of God. And some have suggested that it's perhaps the strongest argument or the biggest challenge that Christianity has to face. And so philosophically or logically, how has the question been positioned? Well, it goes something like this. First, you have premise one. An all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God would not permit suffering and evil. Premise two, suffering and evil exist. Conclusion, therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God does not exist. Are you guys tracking with that, the whole premise thing? I know for some of you, you're digging deep right now to remember philosophy 101. But, but what this is, is this is called a deductive argument or deductive reasoning. And sort of the classic philosophy example would be uh, all men are mortal, premise one. Socrates is a man, 
Premise two, conclusion, therefore Socrates is mortal. And so again, what's going on with this type of an argument is that all of the premises have to be true in order for the conclusion to to bear out, to be true. And so if we go back to our suffering argument here, what it's trying to do is to establish that there is a contradiction between there being an all good, all loving God and the evil and suffering that takes place in our world. And I think if we're being honest, on the surface, it seems compelling. But we have to stop and to ask ourselves, is it true? Is there actually a contradiction? I mean, is it actually illogical for God and suffering to exist? Well, again, I think on the surface, it seems compelling. But actually, in the last 40 or so years, philosophers have outright abandoned this argument. And the reason they've abandoned it is because it has been proven to not work. In other words, this argument doesn't actually hold up. And in fact, what really began to dismantle it and see the end of it was a book came out by a Christian philosopher out of Notre Dame named Alvin Plantiga. And in the mid-1970s, he wrote this book addressing this topic, and it just it outright destroyed the argument. And he so destroyed it that really since that time, no serious philosopher has continued to use it as a basis for disproving the existence of God. And so we may be thinking, well, if that's true, why, why do I keep hearing it? Why do my coworkers and my friends and my professors at school keep bringing it up? Well, I think there's probably a couple reasons for that. One reason I heard articulated by a philosophy professor was this, that, that what gets kind of talked about and, and even solved at an ivory tower level among the scholars, that it'll usually take about a generation or longer for that information to work its way down to kind of a street level knowledge. And, you know, so again, even though no real serious philosopher has been using this in the academic world, we still hear it today with kind of the average person. I think a second reason, though, it persists and we still hear it is because if we're being honest, it's, it's a rhetorically powerful argument. What I mean by that is it's emotionally gripping. You have someone like Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, come out and say, how can you talk about God when you're kneeling at the bed of a dying child? Again, you hear a statement like that or an argument and it kind of, it grips you. You're like, yeah, you're right. How can I talk about God? It just, it, 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 it grabs you. And so again, I think part of the reason it's still used is it's, it's rhetorically powerful. But I've already said it doesn't work. And so let's, let's go ahead and look at it and try, begin to show what is exactly wrong with this argument. And actually, Plantinga showed a lot of things wrong with it that I'm not going to be able to cover. But let me just give you two, two of the reasons why it doesn't work. First off, for an atheist to make this argument, they have to make it based on moral objections. And yet for an atheist, they have no moral, no basis for morality. You see, if there is no God, then there is no such thing as evil. It just doesn't exist. And so let me try to illustrate it this way in case you're still having trouble tracking with this. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who... You know, most of you probably have heard of. He's a Christian apologist. He he tells of a time when he uh, was giving a lecture on this topic and then had a QA and a at the end. And at the end of the Q&A, here's what happened. He said, as soon as I finished one of my lectures, a man shot up from his seat and he blurted out rather angrily. There is too much evil in this world. Therefore, there cannot be a God. I asked the young man to remain standing and to answer a few questions for me. I said, if there is such a thing as evil, aren't you assuming there's such a thing as good? He paused and reflected and he said, I guess so. 
If there's such a thing as good, I countered, you must affirm a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. He paused and he struggled and he hummed and he hawed. And so I said, while you're thinking about it, let me help you out here. I said, when Bertrand Russell was debating the philosopher Frederick Copplestone, at one point in the debate, Copplestone said, Mr. Russell, you do believe in good and bad, don't you? And Russell answered, yes, I do. Well, how do you differentiate between them? Challenged Copplestone. And Russell said, the same way I differentiate between blue and green. Copplestone graciously responded and he said, but Mr. Russell, you differentiate between blue and green by seeing, don't you? How do you differentiate between good and bad? And Russell, with all of his genius still within reach, gave the most vapid answer he could have given. He said, on the basis of feeling, what else? I must confess, Mr. Copplestone was a kinder gentleman than many others. The appropriate logical kill for the moment would have been Mr. Russell. In some cultures, they love their neighbors. In some cultures, they eat them, both on the basis of feeling. Do you have any personal preference? So Ravi continues, he says, so I returned to my questioning of the student in Nottingham. I said, when you say there is evil, aren't you admitting there's good? When you accept the existence of goodness, you must affirm a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But when you admit to a moral law, you must posit a moral lawgiver. That, however, is who you are trying to disprove and not prove. For if there is no moral law giver, there is no moral law. If there is no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. What then is your question? The student stood there and he looked at me and he said, what then am I asking you? (laughs) And Ravi responded, he said, if you don't know what you're asking me, then I can't help you. (laughs) Now, look, I know that's kind of funny. And and really, I want to be honest here that my intention is not to make fun of this poor guy. But really, I want to just show you that that for the atheist to make this argument, it does not stand. You see, they can't make the argument without God uh, because there is no good or evil without God. And yet for most atheists, they have a hard time being consistent with this. In fact, I, I stumbled across another funny example, perhaps involving our, 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 the world's most celebrated atheist, that being Richard Dawkins. And the thing that's interesting is, you know, the thing about Dawkins that I do appreciate is that he can be brutally honest. In fact, uh, here's a quote from one of his, his most popular books. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is and we dance to its music. So again, you've got to appreciate Dawkins' honesty here. But, but if what he's saying is true, that means uh, that what Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot, what these men did, uh, they were just dancing to the DNA of their own music. It means that the terrorists who flew the, the planes into the Twin Towers, that they too were just dancing to their own DNA, to the music of their DNA. In other words, these individuals did nothing wrong, and we really shouldn't blame them. You see, the people that they hurt, they, in the end, were just unlucky. But if you hold to this worldview, what that means is that, as I've already said, you can't object morally to anything. 
Right? Because as Dawkins says there, he says there is no good, there, there is no evil. And yet the irony is, is that uh, Dawkins and many other atheists, they will object morally to God as a way to disprove him. The other thing that's kind of ironic about Dawkins himself is that even though he said this very bold statement in his book, he can't uh, even be consistent himself. Uh, in fact, uh, an example that happened a while back was about four years ago, England was playing uh, Australia in a cricket match in the Ashes. It's, a, it's like a five-day cricket match. And if you don't know what cricket is, I don't have time to explain it. Nor, no, I, don't, I don't get it myself, but basically it's like a terrible version of baseball. But um, <laughs> apparently during one of these matches, an English cricketer named Stuart Broad was up to bat. And, and Broad uh, apparently got out, but uh, he knew he was out. The other team knew he was out, and the audience knew he was out. But the umpire missed it. And the problem was is that Australia had run out of challenges or out of appeals, and so they couldn't contest it. And so as a result, Broad got on base, and, and England went on to win the game as a result of the runs that he scored. Well, Richard Dawkins was outraged. In fact, he went on Twitter to complain about it, and here's some of the tweets he wrote in the aftermath. He said, Stuart Broad obviously knew perfectly well that he was caught. He refused to walk. What a revolting cheat. I now want Australia to win the Ashes. He, he tweeted another one. He said, I'm well aware of the, that it is a fact that professional cricketers care about winning more than about morality, but they bloody well shouldn't. Uh, he said a couple more, but here's one more. He said, if you find someone's wallet and nobody, no umpire sees you pick it up, you don't keep it. You walk it to a police station and you hand it in. Well, you should have saw Twitter blow up in response to these tweets. I mean, people were just giving him the hardest time. I mean, it's like, come on, Richard, this sounds a lot like morality. This, this sounds like a lot like good and bad. I mean, why are you so upset? Isn't Stuart Broad just dancing to the music of his own DNA? What are you talking about? You see, the point is this. As Chris showed last week, the moral argument for the existence of God is so strong and it's so compelling because if we're being honest, we know that it's hardwired into us. We all know that there's good. We all know that there's evil. And to try to deny it, honestly, just does not work. And you can't even be consistent with it. Even Dawkins, who debates for a living on this thing. And so if Dawkins can't be consistent with it, then I, I would argue most atheists can as well. Because to do so means you are being brutal. It means you are being brutally honest. You're saying a, a little child being raped and, and slaughtered, there's nothing wrong with that. And most of us are unwilling to go there. And so that's the first reason why this logical argument doesn't work. Because without God, there is no such a thing as evil. It's just survival of the fittest. A second reason, though, this argument fails is because if God has good reasons for allowing suffering and evil then there is no contradiction between his existence and that of evil. You see, if we go back to kind of our, our whole premise thing where we had uh, premise one, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God would not permit suffering. Within that premise, there is a, uh, there's an assumption. There's actually a hidden premise. And, and the hidden premise is this, that God would not permit suffering without a good reason. And so technically, if we were to break this argument down, what it actually should look like is this. Premise one, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God would not permit suffering without a good reason. Premise two, I cannot think of a good reason. 
Premise three, therefore, there isn't a good reason. Premise four, suffering exists. Conclusion, therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God does not exist. Well, it's obvious there that the problem is with premise three. Just because you can't think of a good reason why God would allow suffering does not prove that he couldn't have good reasons or multiple reasons for allowing it. You see, in order for you to actually make this logical argument, this claim, you would have to be omniscient yourself. You are saying you are all knowing, in in other words, in making this claim. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, if God is infinitely knowledgeable, why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you can't think of? To insist that we know as much about life and history as an all-powerful God is a logical fallacy. In other words, not only is this arrogant to try to make a claim like this, but it actually logically doesn't work. And so kind of the classic example philosophers have shown to illustrate this is, is the illustration of the noceums. How many of you ever heard of the insect called noceums? Yeah, I, I didn't. My, my wife thought it was like an urban legend, but apparently these things are real. And what they are is it's a tiny fly that's so small that, that you can't see them, hence the name noceums. And uh, apparently they have an extremely painful bite. And, and so the illustration would be like this. Let's suppose I set up a one-person tent here on stage, and after setting it up, I open the flap and I look in, and I don't see a St. Bernard. In that moment, it would be reasonable to conclude that there most likely isn't a St. Bernard in the tent, right? Can you track on with that? If I set this tent up, though, and I look inside, and I don't see any noceums, it is not reasonable to conclude that they're not there. Because even if they were there, I couldn't see them. And so what the question becomes then is this. Are God's reasons for allowing suffering and evil more like a St. Bernard or are they more like a noceum? And I think given God's omniscience and given our own limitations, there are good reasons that they are more like noceums than St. Bernard's. I mean, God even tells us in the scriptures this in Isaiah 55, 8, very well-known verse. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. And so again, we see here that this logical argument fails. For it's a work and to disprove God, it can't have all of these holes and all of these issues with it. And so again, that's why philosophers have abandoned it and why they aren't using it anymore to disprove God's existence. And so what some of them have done is instead they've moved away from a deductive argument into an inductive argument. And basically what an inductive argument is, is you're trying to to argue something based on probability. This has also been called the evidential argument. And basically with this argument, what someone is trying to say is that they're saying this. Look, we know that we can't 100 percent prove that God does not exist based on suffering. But given the amount of suffering and given just how widespread it is, we can conclude that most likely or it's, it's probable or, or most likely, again, that God does not exist. And so an inductive argument, it's all about probability. And so here would be an example. Premise one, 70 percent of, of Irish people are Catholic. Premise two, O'Connor is Irish. Conclusion, O'Connor is Catholic. And so, again, you're making an argument based on probability. And so as long as the odds are 51% or more, you can make the argument. And so another argument, this one's not a real 
statistic, at least I hope not, but, but just go with the example. 90% of college students drink alcohol. Premise one. Premise two, John is a college student. Conclusion, John drinks alcohol. Now, the thing about this type of argument that, that is extremely important is that it's all based on background knowledge. And so if we go back to the college example of the kid drinking, what if before I gave you the premises, I told you this, John is a student at BYU at Brigham Young, and he's a devout Mormon. Would you be as confident with the argument with that background knowledge? Well, no, you would not. In fact, you'd have good reasons to doubt and to just outright say, well, that that argument doesn't hold up. The thing for us as Christians, though, is that this book, this thing here called the Bible, this is thousands of pages of background knowledge on who God is. It's thousands of pages that tell us who God is, what he is like and what he has done. And I think that for anyone, if you would take an honest look at the scriptures and look at who God is and what he is like and what he says about himself and what he has done in history, if you do that, I think based on that background knowledge, this evidential argument really begins to crumble. That the probability that God couldn't have good reasons is really just shown to be false. And again, the, the other thing with this argument is it has the exact same problem as the logical argument. There's no way to sufficiently know God's reasons for allowing it or to say that he doesn't have reasons. And so it, too, also fails. And so now that we've looked at this from like kind of an intellectual argument, um, logical argument thing, it still doesn't really answer the question for us, though. Why does God permit suffering then? And I'm sure that for many of you here today, the question has not it's not led you to disbelief in God. In other words, it hasn't you, you still believe God exists, but rather it's led you to this place where you uh, you question his goodness. You question his character and his his wisdom. Again, you're convinced that he exists, but you're just confused as to why he would allow all of this to happen and what reasons he could have for it. And if we're looking at this question, why does God allow suffering? I, I think if we're being honest, the real answer to this question in an ultimate sense is we don't know. We don't know why God has allowed the things that he has. You see, I think for many of us, we want just one answer or one reason that would really just solve this question. But, but the truth is, we don't have one. You see, even if we just think of suffering uh, in and of itself, we, we see that suffering is the result of all kinds of different things. For example, suffering, some suffering that comes into our life is the result of mankind's free will and the sin that results from that. Right? Suffering happens when, when we sin against each other. Or when we sin even against ourselves, But that doesn't account for all types of suffering. What about if you climb a tree and fall out? Well, no one sinned against you. You're just suffering about uh, based on the natural uh, laws. We also know, according to the scriptures, that some suffering and evil that comes into our life is the result of Satan and demons. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. And in Luke 13, there's this scene where he's healing a woman who has this physical issue. But here's what he says. He says, and ought not it this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. As well, when we look at the scriptures, we see that Satan was behind Job's suffering. Jesus tells us plainly in John 10, 10, that the thief comes only to steal, to kill and to destroy. 
And so again, certainly Satan and demons are behind a lot of the suffering that we see and experience. And so if there are multiple reasons for suffering that come into our lives, there, are, there would also appear to be multiple reasons as to why God allows the suffering into our lives. And I think sometimes we get a glimpse of those reasons. We see them and they make sense to us. But I think that there are other times where uh, it doesn't make sense to us, where we can't see the reasons as to why he would allow this. I mean, according to the scriptures, we know that some suffering uh, is a way to discipline us. We also know that some suffering is used to refine our characters. But to say that that's true of all suffering, I think, is, is, is really unfair and really is too simple. To say that a four-year-old child dying of cancer uh, has that because of some character deficiency is just not being true to the situation. Again, it's, it's, it's oversimplified. And I think as Christians, we have to be careful here not to give an oversimplified answer to this question. I mean, does the Bible give us some reasons and some answers as to why God might allow suffering uh, and why he might allow us to endure some types? Well, yes. But are there still things that don't make sense? Are there situations we look at and we just think, I don't see any reason why God would allow that to happen? Well, again, I think if we're being honest, the answer also is yes. And yet, as we saw earlier, not knowing all the reasons why God would permit suffering does not prove that he could not have them. All it proves is that you and I are not God. It proves that we are limited in our understanding. You know, I've been thinking about this analogy, and I hope it's helpful. It's been helpful for me, but, but in terms of thinking about there are things in this life that we're not going to know yet. There are things that we will take to our graves that will still be unanswered. And I, I thought of this analogy of, of a baby inside of a mother's womb. You think of that baby in the womb, they only know that one reality. And they probably can't even imagine something greater or something beyond that. And, you know, I, I don't think babies probably can have rational thoughts or like contemplate life. But, it, but if they could, I, I was thinking about it this week. I bet they would be wondering you know, as they're growing inside the mother's womb, like, why do I have legs? Like, I can't see any reason why I would ever need this. I mean, I'm just kind of floating around in some, is it amionic fluid or I forget, it's been a while, but um, I'm just kind of floating around. Why do I need these legs? I mean, they're, they're really inconvenient. They're starting to, to make the space in here a lot smaller. And, or maybe why do I have these eyes? I don't see any good reason why I would develop eyes. I mean, everything's dark in here. And in the same way, as a baby uh, can't understand a different reality, I think for us, at times, we struggle to realize that there is a reality that maybe we can't imagine. You see, if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, we have been promised to be born into a new reality. One that the Bible says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And I believe on that day when you and I are born into that new reality, our lives and the suffering that we endured, it will in that moment all begin to make sense. And in that moment, we'll begin to see God's wisdom and the love that he had in directing our lives. You see, there's this really interesting book in the Bible called the book of Job. And in that book, it's, it's all about suffering. But, but one of the things that's interesting about Job is that it teaches us that many of the reasons we assume people suffer are just downright wrong. 
In fact, the whole book of Job is, is a dialogue between Job and his friends where they're trying to, to solve this question and to figure out what it was that Job did that was so bad that God was punishing him. And finally, at the end of the book, God shows up and he begins to speak to Job. And instead of telling Job why he suffered, instead he just asked Job a bunch of questions. In Job 38, 2, he says this. This is God speaking to Job. He says, who is it that questions my wisdom with such arrogant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and who stretched out the surveying line? Job, who who makes the rainfall on barren land or in a desert where no one lives? Job, who who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and makes the tender grass shoot up? Who can shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and strike at the ground as you direct? And again, this goes on for like two chapters. You start to feel really bad for Job. Like, man, this poor guy. If he hadn't suffered enough, now here's God blasting him with questions he can't answer. And at first glance, these questions seem uh, to not answer the question why Job was suffering. And yet what we see in these questions is that God is saying, Job, I'm God and you're not. Job, I'm, I have all kinds of infinite wisdom. Job, I, I created this beautiful world out of my imagination and I am actively involved in sustaining it. Job, I'm calling out to clouds to strike lightning. Job, I'm there when the, when the deer gives birth. And if you can, if I can do all of that and I can sustain that, then you can trust that I know what I'm doing when it comes to your life and the suffering that comes into it. You see, like Job, I believe many of us are going to go to our deaths not having all of our questions on suffering and evil answered. But one truth that should sustain us and give us faith to continue on and to have hope is that our God, far from making himself immune to our suffering, actually willingly entered into our suffering by becoming a man. And he did this not just so that he could relate to us. He ultimately became a man and he went to the cross so that he could overcome and defeat evil and suffering by suffering himself. Tim Keller puts it this way. The death of Jesus was qualitatively different from any other death. The physical pain was nothing compared to the spiritual experience of cosmic abandonment. Christianity alone among the world religions claims God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore has firsthand uh, therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture and imprisonment. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and the God forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. You see, we can always look outside to evil and suffering, but but we also have to look inside to our own evil. And that factors into this question of why, as God permitted it, he's permitted it so that he doesn't destroy us in destroying evil and suffering. And that's why he went to the cross. You see, there's this other book in the Bible that deals with suffering called First Peter. And in it, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are facing all kinds of persecution and suffering. 
And in that letter, Peter talks a lot about the future hope that we have as Christians. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, 3, he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. (coughs) Excuse me. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him with re- and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcomes of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Later on in the letter in chapter 2, he picks the theme back up and he begins to talk about Christ's suffering. And what it was like that, that what Jesus went through. And in chapter 2, verse 21, he says this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But... He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. You see, even Jesus, while suffering, had to trust his father he, did, he maybe didn't know all the answers. He had to just, he had to just not retaliate. He had to trust himself to the one who judges justly. And the truth is, is that in the end, you and I will have to do the same. I want to close here with just one final quote from John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. So powerful. And it he says this. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time I have, after a while, I have turned away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerable thirst, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us and our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There still is a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross symbolizes divine suffering. 
The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. You know, Christianity might not answer all of the questions in the way that we would want in regards to this topic. But I believe that it does give us the best resources for facing suffering. Because in the scriptures, in the gospel, we see that suffering has meaning. We see that nothing is wasted, that everything that comes into our lives has been filtered by a loving father. And that ultimately he has a plan to rid this world of all suffering and all evil. That in the cross, the suffering servant, Jesus, defeated evil. And when he returns one day, he will do away with it forever. And in that truth and in that hope, we can move forward and face the things that come into our life. Let's pray. Father, we know that there are situations and and questions that come into our lives, Lord, that we wrestle with. God, there are things that happen in our world that do not make sense. But thank you, God, that as we look to the cross, as we look to King Jesus, we know that the suffering that comes into our life can't be because you don't love us. Again, we turn to that cross and we see you there, God, entering into our suffering and and, and not making yourself immune to it, but suffering for us so that one day you could end all suffering and all evil. Thank you, Lord. God, I pray for my friends here who are still in the midst of wrestling. Those who have suffered greatly, Lord, and and who have, have just really struggled with this question. God, I pray that right now the Holy Spirit would give them an extra measure of grace. That he would meet them in that place of suffering and bring comfort and hope and strength. And a confidence and a faith that we can trust you even when we can't see. Even when we don't have all the answers, we can trust you because you're good. You're so good. You, you gave us your son, Lord. It says in Romans 8, If he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Lord, help us to trust that, to believe that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.